prayer life, especially just getting started, take that hymn and uh, pray through it. And uh, it will, I bet, be a real boon to, um, to your prayers as you pray that Jesus Christ would take your life and make it thine in every respect. If you would open your, your Bibles to John chapter 1, our text this morning is verses 29 through 34. Gospel of John chapter 1, 29 through 34. The next day, John the Baptist saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is He of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water, that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and I have borne witness that this is the Son of God. Let's pray. Almighty God, Help us to behold Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, as we uh, see Him revealed in the Scriptures. I pray that He would be revealed in every one of our hearts. We ask in His name. Amen. Oftentimes when I'm asked to conduct a funeral, I'm asked to read the 23rd Psalm. I used to ask, uh, which version people wanted me to use, whether they would want me to use the, the New English Standard Version or the King James Version, and of course you know the answer. Uh, people only want to hear the King James Version of the 23rd Psalm. They feel like they have not heard the 23rd Psalm unless it's been read from the King James Version. Um, so I've, I've just stopped asking and just use it uh, whenever I'm asked to read the 23rd Psalm. Many of you have the New International Versions open uh, in your laps uh, this morning, open to John 1.29, and it says, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. I react to that translation the same way that most people uh, respond to a non-King James version of Psalm 23. It leaves just a bit to be desired. Now I know there's a few Greek uh, a few Greek readers here in the congregation, so I'll let you know that the the Greek word uh, for that in the New International is translated look, or in the English Standard and King James is trans translated behold, is the Greek word idu, uh, and not blepo. So John is not saying, look over there. Here comes the Lamb of God. That's not what he's saying. He is saying, behold. He is saying, fix your gaze. 
He's saying, observe intently the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's what the Holy Spirit wants us to do this morning as we study this passage of Scripture together. The Holy Spirit wants us to behold the Lamb of God. So if you walk out of here this morning without gazing upon Christ, without understanding why He is called the Lamb of God, without knowing that He, knowing how He is able to take away the sin of the world, then you will have missed the very reason why God included this passage in the Scriptures. And so, even as I'm preaching, I exhort you, make it your prayer that you would behold Jesus Christ this morning. Remember from last week that John the Baptist was out preaching near the Jordan River and all Judea and all Jerusalem, they were, they were coming out to hear his sermons and then to be baptized by him. And in our text, John the Baptist is the one speaking. However, in keeping, as you'll remember from last week, uh, what we saw of John the Baptist's character is he doesn't take center stage. Even though he's the one speaking, he doesn't want the spotlight on him. He refuses to do that. He's only the stagehand, so to speak, who draws open the curtain leading Jesus Christ on the center stage. I'm impressed by John the Baptist. We have no indication in the Bible that he had ever formally met Jesus uh, prior to the day described here in our passage. But yet, John the Baptist seems to have a better understanding of who Jesus was than the disciples who spent three years with him. And so, when John the Baptist sees Jesus coming toward him, presumably having never met Him, He immediately identifies Jesus as a Lamb of God who specifically came to take away the sin of the world. Now you compare that with the disciples. Even on the eve of Christ's crucifixion, after Jesus had repeatedly and plainly told them that He was going to suffer, that He was going to die, and that He was going to rise from the grave in three days in order to uh, redeem sinners, these disciples were still unclear about Jesus' purpose in coming to the earth. But John the Baptist is not unclear. He knew, he knew precisely that Jesus was the suffering servant who had come into the world to be the Lamb of God and take away the sin of the world. Why do the disciples fail to understand this? Well, I think their, their understanding was clouded by their expectation that the Messiah was going to be the great warrior king who would subdue the whole world, who would rule physically over all mankind upon King David's throne. And so their judgment was clouded by this expectation. They believed that the Messiah's kingdom would be a kingdom of military power, would be a kingdom of vengeance upon Israel's enemies. 
That's why the, the disciples were often arguing who would sit next to Jesus. Because they were expecting to have places of power and authority uh, with Christ in His kingdom. This idea of Christ's kingdom of being a military power, of ruling over all the nations was certainly very appealing to the imaginations of the disciples. And these ideas were not uh, unique only to the disciples. Uh, The whole nation of of the Jews uh, was looking for a Messiah who would be a warrior king that would make them the, the most powerful nation on earth and would bring down swift vengeance upon their enemies. In fact, the Jews are still looking for this type of Messiah, this warrior king who will uh, come and reign over them, come and subdue all of their enemies. But the disciples and the nation of the Jews uh, both had failed to take into account uh, some very important prophecies about the Messiah that did not fit their perception of who the Messiah would be and what the Messiah would come and do. Most of you are familiar with the passage in Isaiah 53 of the suffering servant of God. Isaiah 53 was written over 700 years before Christ was born. Um, It's there in the Jewish Bibles, but they have excluded it from their weekly readings in the synagogue. Uh, I think one of the reasons why is this passage so directly contradicts their notion of what the Messiah, being a warrior king, um, would, would actually be. I think it was easier to exclude this notion than to deal with it honestly. This notion that is the, that Christ, the Messiah, is coming as a suffering servant. In fact, it it so directly points to the real reason that Jesus Christ came here to earth. That many people mistake Isaiah 53. People who don't know their Bible very well, they mistake Isaiah 53 as being a New Testament passage. Because it so clearly uh, paints the picture of what Jesus Christ came to do. In fact, I had an assignment in college. I had a world religions class, and so I was supposed to interview someone from a different religion, and so I chose to interview a a Jewish priest. And I asked him about Isaiah 53. And I said, how do you view this passage? And uh, he said, well, Isaiah 53 is talking about um, not the Messiah, but the suffering people of Israel. And so they had turned it from being a passage about the Messiah, a clear passage about the Messiah, to being about themselves and their sufferings through the ages. But listen to Isaiah 53. I'm going to read verses 3 through 12. Listen closely and I'll read it slowly. He was despised and rejected by men a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. As one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. 
But He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with His wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to His own way. And the Lord has laid on Him the iniquity of us all. Again, this was written 700 years before Christ was even born. And it continues, He was oppressed and He was afflicted, yet He did not open His mouth. Like a lamb, hearkening back to our passage this morning. In fact, I think that's what John the Baptist is drawing from uh, here in, uh, when he uh, says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so the passage in Isaiah 53 continues, Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before his shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of living, living, stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring, he shall prolong his days, and the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. John the Baptist knew that Jesus Christ was the suffering servant. He knew that Jesus Christ came here to earth to patiently endure sufferings, to bear the sin of many, to endure the wrath of God in our stead, to be crushed by God for our transgressions, and to pour out His soul to death for our redemption. How did John the Baptist know that Jesus was the suffering servant of God if he had never met Him? Well, our passage actually tells us, uh, verses 31 through 34. He says, I myself did not know Him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that He might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on Him. I myself did not know Him, but He who sent me to baptize with water said to me, On whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is He who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and I have borne witness that this is the Son of God. And so he understood Jesus Christ is a suffering servant. Do you know that Jesus Christ is a suffering servant who came to serve you by suffering the wrath of God in your behalf? Have you entrusted yourself to Him? Don't be thick-headed like the twelve disciples or like the nation of the Jews. John the Baptist 
when he saw Jesus approaching. He didn't call out, Behold, the, the holiest man to ever walk the earth. Nor did he call out, Behold, the teacher sent from God. He didn't even cry out, Behold, the son of David. He could have said all those things and he would have been right. But instead he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sin of the world. John wanted to emphasize the most important reason that Jesus came into the world. Mark 10.45 He didn't come to be served, but to serve and give His life as a ransom for many. What does it mean? When John the Baptist calls Jesus the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Well, in order to understand this term, you're going to need to understand a couple of things from the Old Testament. In the book of Exodus, after God had sent the nine plagues against Pharaoh and against Egypt to force Pharaoh to release the the Israelites um, from their slavery, God sent a tenth plague. And you know what that tenth plague was. It was a plague to kill all the firstborn of every person throughout Egypt. There was only one way of escape. The Israelites were instructed to slaughter a lamb and to take the blood of that lamb and smear the blood on the doorposts of the house. And so as the Lord passed over the house, He would see the blood and He would pass over that house and He would spare the firstborn that was living therein. The Israelites celebrated uh, their being passed over and they also celebrate the release uh, from slavery each year by celebrating the Passover. It continues to be the Jews' most important observance of the year. And so when John the Baptist cried out, Behold, the Lamb of God! He was referring to the fact that Christ's blood was going to cause God's wrath to pass over people's sins. And then additionally, there were the lambs of the daily sacrifice. Before the temple was destroyed in 70 A.D., every morning and every evening, a lamb would be sacrificed in the morning, another lamb sacrificed in the evening. And these lambs would be sacrificed because of the people's sins. Even when the Jews were under siege by other nations and there was no food left in Jerusalem so that, uh, forgive me for being graphic, uh, that uh, people were, were eating the mother's placenta. <laughs> uh, such was the, the uh, starvation in the city. Yet they would not kill the lamb to eat it for food because every morning... And every evening, they would sacrifice these lambs for their sins. The Bible instructed the Israelites to do this. So for hundreds of years, from the time that the tabernacle uh, was constructed, all the way through the time where the temple was built and, and stayed until 70 A.D. when it was destroyed by the Romans, those hundreds and hundreds of years, two times a day, a lamb would be slaughtered for the sins of the people. Thousands and thousands of lambs were slaughtered. By my count, at least 730,000 lambs were sacrificed. 
And this number doesn't include the bulls and the goats and the birds that were sacrificed. Now, we're in the millions in terms of animals. How many sins were uh, did? How many sins were atoned for? How many sins were forgiven because of all these animals being slaughtered? You know the answer. None. Nobody's sins were forgiven. Um, why is this the case? Well, there's a twofold answer. Uh, why, uh, why, were, why were all these animals uh, sacrificed, I guess is the question I want to ask. Well, there's a twofold answer. First of all, to remind the people that they were sinners and needed to be forgiven. Secondly, to point to the truth, the only sacrifice, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, who comes to take away the sin of the world. Hebrews 10 uh, verses 3 and 4 says, In these sacrifices there is a reminder of sins every year. In other words, when an animal is sacrificed, it was a, a, um, it was a sermon in, 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 the, uh, in the sacrifice saying, You are a sinner and you need to have your sins atoned for. And he goes on and says, For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Later on in Hebrews 10 verses 11 through 14 says, Every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Why did he sit down? Well, his work was finished. And then the passage continues, waiting from that time until his enemy should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. 1 Peter 3.18 says, For Christ also suffered for sins. The righteous for the unrighteous. I include myself in that. That He might bring us to God. The very heart of our Christian faith uh, rests on Jesus Christ. You miss Him and you miss everything. Without Him, your sins remain to your account. Without Him, you will be judged by the holy and righteous God. Without Him, you will suffer His eternal wrath for all eternity. Only Jesus Christ can take away our sins. And the only way He can take away our sins is by taking our sins upon Himself. For Christ suffered for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring us to God. We're getting ready to close, or we're getting really close to the end of the sermon. Uh, but before I finish, I've got to tell you about my favorite Greek word. I may have mentioned it before in another, in another sermon in the past, but it's good enough that I want to mention it again. Do you see here in verse 29 where it says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away 
the sin of the world. That phrase, takes away, is actually one word in the Greek. It's the word iro. It literally means to lift up or to pick up. And I memorized this word in, in Greek class by picturing myself in a rowboat. Because the word is iro. You get it? <laughs> and so in my mind's eye, I would connect the word and what it sounds like with the meaning. So in my mind's eye, I would think of myself rowing so fast in the rowboat that the rowboat would lift up out of the water. And uh, I would be rowing in the clouds. So the clouds are floating by and I'm just up there rowing in the air. Uh, the picture of tranquility and ultimate peacefulness. That's what Jesus Christ did with our sins. He, to use the word I wrote, He lifted up our sins from upon us. And He carried them away by placing them upon Himself. And then suffering the punishment in our place. Can you feel the guilt being lifted off of you as you mentally picture Christ lifting your sins away? Can you feel the freedom of knowing that Christ has carried your sins away forever and ever? Can you feel the security of knowing that Christ has perfected you? That's the word used in Hebrews has perfected you in righteousness by bearing your sins upon His body on the cross. Can you feel the joy of knowing that God, that, that Christ has brought you to God by offering Himself as your substitute? Think of that word, Iro, because Christ has taken up your sins taking them away because He took them upon Himself. Charles Spurgeon was invited to preach for the first time at the Crystal Palace in London. In the late 1800s, they didn't have uh, electronic amplification. So Spurgeon went in uh, a couple of hours early before he preached to check the acoustics. And so he climbed into the pulpit and he used John 1.29 as his, as his sound check. And so he boomed out, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Well, there was this poor maintenance guy up in the balcony that did not know that anybody had come into the auditorium. He was down on his knees working, and so he didn't see uh, Spurgeon. And it startled him so much but he thought that uh, it was an angel and that Jesus Christ was coming back. <laughs> and uh, he, so he cried out for the first time in his life to the Lord and became a Christian. Have you beheld the Lamb of God? As we pray together. Almighty God, we thank you that you sent the Son of God Jesus Christ to be the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world that took away our sin God I pray 
that You would help us all to behold Him now and to fix our gaze upon Him because He so loved us, continues to love us. And God, I pray that You would excite our energies, stir our hearts, um, move our wills to follow Him earnestly, zealously, because we wholeheartedly trust Him who loves us eternally with an everlasting love. We pray in His name. Amen.